And now it's time for We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here's your host this morning, Mike Schmidt. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. morning. Thank you for being with us today. We certainly appreciate Ray back there at the station. All you who are listening at home, we thank you very much for that. Uh, Usually, We Are Just Christians is a two-man show. Gary Jones is usually here with me, but he's under the weather today, so... I'm here flying solo and hope that you can help me out by calling in. This is a live call-in show, and we will take your calls and or texts today while we're on the air. And you can help us out by bringing to us whatever is on your mind. This is a spirit show about spiritual things. You don't have to be a believer in the Bible or anything like that to call in the show. Uh, we would love to have you call in. In fact, if you don't believe in the Bible or have uh, have some something you'd like to say about churches or two people that go to church or scriptural things. Maybe you've got a question that's lingered since you were young or something that turned you away from religion. We'd like to hear about that. And we promise we're not going to make fun of you or antagonize you or put you on the spot. That isn't the point of this show. The point of this show is to learn. We are just Christians. And I'll give you the numbers in just a moment. But we are just Christians is is about being just a Christian rather than part of some man-made denomination or tradition. It's, a part, it's, a, it's about going back to the Bible to find something simple and basic. Uh, remind me in just a moment, remind myself to talk about the word radical. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But let me give you the numbers first before we get too far ahead. If you'd like to call the show, you can reach us by the usual call-in number WPSL, which is 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590. One five nine zero is the number to call in. You'll get patched right through to me here. I'm at the church building. We're using Skype, and they'll put your call right through to us. There'll be about a second delay, so we'll try not to walk over each other. But when you do that, we'll have a conversation. You can ask whatever question you want, whatever comments you want to make. We'll respond to that, and we're going to try this morning as best we can, as usual, to give you a, a biblical or scriptural answer or so at least some references to look up in the Bible about the about the comment or question that you have so you can then learn for yourself. We're going to try to point you back just to the Bible. Uh, we'll talk about traditional things, but that's not the basis of our authority, what we, where we think you ought to be living. In your own personal life and in, and in our life as a church here, we try to follow what the scriptures say as plainly as we can read it and as honestly as we can read what's before us, always trying to learn. That's why we have Bible studies here at the church, so we can keep learning and not just passing on what somebody else from some other generation taught us to believe. So you can reach us at 772-340-1590. Now, if you'd like to text me this morning, I'll do my best to respond to texts on the air. We can even use that question on the air if you'd like. You can reach me by text message on the air here this morning or during the week at 772 772- Two six zero six one two zero seven seven two two six zero six one two zero. I'll not give you Gary's text number since he's not here. I don't know how well he's feeling at home, but he'll be back hopefully next week with us um, to, to co-host the show with me. And you can also reach us by email, a simple email address, justchristians@att.net. Maybe you're driving right now. Try to make a note of something you want to ask and, and email us, 772. I can't email 772. Email justchristians at att.net. Justchristians at att.net. All right. Well, we've got a caller on the line. We'll go right to the phones this morning. How are you doing, Sharon? Are you there? Yes, I'm here. What's um, on your mind? Can you explain to me how in the Bible it says that on the first day God created light, but then he didn't create the sun, moon, and stars until the fourth day. So what was the light that he created on day one? Okay. Uh, Appreciate the question. Uh, Do you have an idea on that yourself? Well, I'm I guess he created the concept of light, but it says that there was light and there was darkness the first day. Right. So there was some kind of 
uh, what what am I going to say, a rotating light or alternating light and darkness on the first day, the not morning and the, the morning and the evening were the first day. That's right. Well, Sharon, I would I would say go ahead if you want. I, Minute, minute, so I'm, I'm going to hang up and let you tell me what. Oh, you all right. Uh, I'll give you my thoughts. And of course, we're we're speaking here, and I think the reference that she is getting at is Genesis chapter one, the story of the six days of creation, and then chapter two continues with the creation of man, uh, more specifically. But uh, there are two two basic, at least two general ideas about Genesis one that how it works. Uh, some people say that these are six literal 24-hour days that are taking place. And then others say that these represent ages or periods of time. Maybe they're 24 hours, maybe they're not, and so forth. That's been a debate for a long, long time, even before uh, Darwin came along in the 1800s. That's been the debate. My own thinking about the Bible is whenever it's possible, I'm going to take what's, what it says straightforwardly and literally or plainly as much as possible, unless the language itself just doesn't seem to fit that. It's obviously it's metaphorical or spiritual. And so you have a problem. And there are problems. I think we, when we, we began our Bible class, we're having one right now in the book of Genesis. In fact, we're in chapter 18 and 19, so we're a long way away from chapter 1. But when we talked about this, I tried to present the problems with the seven literal 24-hour days. You see some difficulties with that, and you see other difficulties when you try to make these days into ages. For example, the uh, plants are created on one day, and then the light and darkness comes the next day, and so the sun, the moon, so that doesn't fit with a million years before you had light and darkness to help plants have photosynthesis. So you don't really have a, a good way to make that work. What I think, if you want my opinion, and I'm going to give you my read, uh, my reading and study of it, and you can look at it for yourself. I think that chapter one, verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is a general statement about the whole process. I'm not sure that that is day one. That's a general. In fact, a lot of versions of the Bible have a, a, a space between verse one and verse two because they think the same thing, that verse one is more of a general statement or a heading of what's about to happen, that this in the beginning encompasses a period of time that w when God created the heavens and the earth at the beginning of what is now the known universe. And then it makes a statement beginning with verse two about what the earth was like at that time. Now, there may have been a long period of time that elapsed between Genesis 1, verse 1, and 1, verse 2. No one knows if there is. I'm not stating that there is. I'm simply saying that that is certainly a logical possibility from reading this text. And if so, that would encompass a, long, a period of time from what some people call a Big Bang or the beginning of the physical universe, which... Ah, the Big Bang is probably scientifically a misnomer. It's actually actually something that happened in a process, probably what we would call an explosion of some kind, but it happened from a uh, when the universe was a singular point in in whatever we want to call space. Sometimes these concepts don't make any sense. And then there was this this ignition or this bang, and everything began to unfold. And we're still seeing that whole process unfolding. When you look through the telescopes, what we began to notice in the, in the 19, early 1900s was that everything is moving away from itself. The whole universe is in motion. Things are not static as they might appear to us looking at the night sky. They're, in, they're moving away from some central point. And um, this, of course, was, oh, this disproves the Bible. Well, actually, it doesn't disprove the Bible. It fits perfectly with this account in Genesis 1 that there was a beginning to the universe. That's the big, that's the big takeaway from the Big Bang Theory, which even Einstein and many others uh, really found he, his word was repugnant. And I'd rather not believe it, Einstein said, because it meant that there was a beginning to the universe. And before that time, Scientists had said that there was no beginning to the universe. Everything was static. A steady state theory is what I was taught in elementary school is one of the possibilities. But this, when they began to look through the telescopes, 
and, and do measurements. Uh, that's how we got this famous man. Somebody text this in, but I was getting ready to talk about this. This famous man, Hubble, that they named the telescope after later, he discovered that the objects were moving away from each other by shifting the colors of the light as they moved. And this then, coupled with a couple of other discoveries and observations in the early, early 1900s, led to this thinking that there was an, a beginning to the universe, what's often called in common vernacular, a Big Bang. We don't know when that happened, but that set in motion all these chemical and nuclear processes where things go from the state of pure uh, uh, energy and matter down to all the basic elements, down to the making of diamonds and the, in the or earth and all that kind of stuff, all the other elements. Everything else comes from that. All the other energy and matter come from that original bit. This does not, to me, conflict with Genesis chapter 1. doesn't conflict, at least in a fundamental way. doesn't conflict with Genesis 1 verse 1 for sure. And what it says in 1 verse 2 is the earth was without form. And that word in Greek is chaos. It's, it was chaotic. It wasn't organized like we see it now. And void, meaning empty, it was devoid of life. So life wasn't there either. And then God said, let there be light. The caller mentioned verse 3, and there was light, and he divided the light from the darkness. Now, she's correct that there is, go there is a, a um, several things happen of the division of the skies from the, uh, from the earth and the water from the water above the earth and on the earth. And then uh, the, the herbs are formed. And then verse 14 it said that there was there, there will be lights in the firmament or the sky of the heavens to divide the day and the night. This is on the fourth day. Now, if you take the more modern type of thinking, this is would be millions of years or billions of years even from the beginning. I don't subscribe to that. But it's obviously not exactly the same time as Genesis chapter one, verse one, which is the first day. So however long you make these days, there's this difference between the beginning of light as such, light and darkness, from the actual days that we have here on Earth. And I more take the position that in the beginning there was this flash of light and light was created because God created this, uh, the beginning of all the stars and the galaxies that we see, which make to the human eye light and the spectrum of, of, of wavelengths of light that we can visibly see were created at the very beginning in this great explosion or chaos from the beginning. But it isn't until day four that you get God arranging the planets and the sun and the moon in the form that we have them now, or at least something very similar to that, where the earth is revolving around a one, one star in a regular way, and there, it has its own moon that revolves around it and its own times and seasons, which create a situation on the earth of, of light and dark. He says he made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the, the night. And then he says he made the stars also. And so then God put them there, it says. He set it this way in verse 17 to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and divide the light from the darkness. And God saw it was good. And so the evening and morning were the fourth day. So the placing of the sun and the moon the way they are in the orbits around the sun and then their orbit around the earth was to benefit man and to benefit the earth. All the other stuff is, is out there in outer space that took place first. And so there is this separation in time, however long you want to make it, from the initial light that bursts forth in the universe with God's command, let there be light, and then the setting in motion of the things as we see them from the earth, on the earth, of days and nights, of, and, and uh, so forth, and the two great lights of sun and moon. And yes, there's a difference. So I think it's just a difference of the, of the time period that took place, whether you view it as only a couple of days or whether you view it as a long period of time, took place between these two things of God creating initially, which is light, and then dividing it up. Now, in re realistically, um, I'm going to read a couple of texts. I want to come back, and I wish I had someone here like Gary to remind me about this, but uh, 
I'd like to come back to um, this idea of the first day of the week in just a moment. So John texts in, it was the flash from the Big Bang, then the stars formed later, then the planets, um, let me get here, then, then the planets around the sun and the suns, and then the real question, will the universe collapse back again? Earth rotation creates day and night, but they thought the sun moved. Some people did. Some people didn't think the sun moved and so forth. But um, the question of it collapsing back again, you see, here's the pro- here's the point. Physicists study and astrophysicists study the fact that this great expansion is taking place. Now, the expansion, uh, look, if you, if you want to believe in evolution and you don't want to believe in a God, you have to get rid of the beginning. That was the big problem. There's a book out there called God and the Astronomers. You should look it up. It's a small book written in the 19, I think, late 80s, maybe early 90s, by Robert Jastro, a phys- an agnostic physicist. And he wrote a small book called God and the Astronomers. It was a bestseller for a little while about the emotional reaction of the scientists to the discovery of the Big Bang. And it's not like they would portray that the Big Bang disproved the Bible and set solidified atheistic thinking. The Big Bang is a problem to atheists because the Big Bang means that there was a beginning to the universe. And they'd always said before that, if you want to get rid of God, you've got to get rid of a beginning because that implies creation or that, that something existed did not exist before. We want the universe to be eternal, you see. And so they thought for a long time, how are we going to get rid of the beginning? We've got to get rid of this beginning because it's a threat to our atheistic system. The Bible teaches there was a beginning, and the Bible teaches there's going to be an end, both brought about by the Word of God, you see. The Word of God brought about the, about the universe, the Word of God in Second Peter 3 is going to do, do away with the universe as when the time comes, whenever that may be. And so the theory came about, I think, uh, was it Hawking or those fellows, maybe 25, 30 years ago, began to circulate a theory called the oscillating universe. And that is that, uh, well, my dad used to have those, a wooden paddle we used to play with. He played games with me and my brothers. Wooden paddle with a little rubber ball and a string attached to it. So he'd smack the ball, it would go way out across the living room, then it'd come back and he'd smack it again, you see. And so that's an oscillation, back and forth. So the, the universe, it would go, the ball would go way, stretch way out, high speed, until it finally began to reach a point where it would slow down, and then the force of the rubber band would pull the ball back toward the paddle. And so they picture the universe this way, that there was this big bang, the universe is going outward at tremendous speed and over great distances, unimaginable distances, but eventually it's going to reach a point where it slows down and begins to collapse upon itself again, and then it's going to all collapse back to a single point in time, smaller than the atom, the whole universe will be in that shape again, and then it's going to explode again and go back out, and this process of oscillation will just has been going on forever and will continue to go on forever. This was the this is called the oscillating universe theory. You got to have something like that because you got to get rid of the beginning because the beginning implies a creation and the creation implies a creator and you just can't have that if you're a secular person who doesn't want to have God in, in the picture. So you got to get rid of God in the picture. So what do you have to have to make that happen? Well, they began to think about that. What do you got to what would have to be true? for the oscillating universe to be a real thing. Well, there would have to be a lot of matter because matter creates the gravitational forces that pull everything back together. And so you have to have a lot of matter to do this. And so they began to search. And when they began to search a long time ago, you know, 20, 30 years ago or more, they, they, didn't, they didn't have 10 to the 20th power times enough matter to make it happen again. There just was enough matter. So they began to look, well, we're, are we seeing dark matter? Are we seeing antimatter? What are we finding? And they've been searching and putting up, spending your tax money, putting up all of these satellites and probes into outer space to find this matter, to figure out. That's one of the things they're doing, besides looking for extraterrestrial life. They're trying to find the matter so they can, quote, solve the mystery of the creation of the universe. What they're looking for is a way to get the creation out of the picture, if possible. And they have come up 
so far short, it isn't even uh, probable that they can ever find that much matter in the universe. There just isn't enough matter to make the universe collapse back upon itself, given the great distances that are involved. And the more and the further out we send these telescopes, like this new Webb telescope, the more the further away we realize things are, and there's more stuff out there beyond what we've seen, and there just is not enough matter to make it all happen. This is a problem for atheists. It's a real problem for cosmologists who, who want to delve into in if they stuck with just looking at what they see and making observations, that's one thing. But most of these kind of fellows that want to popularize it and make money or, or influence things have to get off into the philosophy of all of this. And the first thing you have to do is attack theism or creation or anything else. Now, a lot of them don't. The truth is, a lot of these cosmologists and astrophysicists are believers in God. Not necessarily the God of the Bible, but they certainly know when they look at this, uh, they, they have the same reaction as psalmist in one thirty Psalm one thirty nine that wherever they go they can't get away from God. So this is why things are like they are. Now um, Jason texts in. Let me read it. I haven't read it before. Even an oscillating universe doesn't disprove the existence of God. It all had to start somewhere, which is of course that's true. I was going to mention this. It's true that it had to start somewhere. And so the question is, well, if you have an oscillating universe, what was there before that? Is there anything scientific that would tell you that matter has always existed? All the matter in the singularity of the Big Bang has a source, whether they want to admit it or not. It's not turtles all the way down here. So, you know, that old thing that the Earth was sitting on turtles. Well, what's a turtle standing on? Well, it's standing on the back of another turtle. And then you keep going down. Well, when some guy said, well... What's next? Well, it's turtles all the way down, an infinite number of turtles that the whole universe is standing on. Well, is it is that a scientific print? Is that a scientific statement? Now, look, I've been on college campuses involved in debates with prof atheist professors, public debates, heard the questions from the audiences, taken the questions from the audiences and the students about this very matter. And the truth is, uh, there's no scientific basis for saying that's an oscillating universe. It's just a theory, really not even a good theory. It's a hypothesis, and I wouldn't even call it a working hypothesis. And a lot of people admit that. It's just an idea. Does, is, does any scientific evidence exist to show that the universe is an oscillating universe? And the answer is no. Okay. Does any scientific evidence exist to show us that matter is eternal? The answer is no. Theoretically, we can imagine this, and that's because we're pressured, if we want to get God out of the picture, to have an oscillating universe or have matter be eternal. But the scientific evidence does not state that. So if you want to make statements about oscillating universes or multiverses and all, there's infinite number of universes, you can make those statements. You can always put words together in a word salad. But don't call it science. That's my point. Don't say it's a scientific statement and pretend that you're so scientific, but people that believe in the Bible are not being scientific. In fact, the Bible statement that the caller referred to in Genesis 1 about the creation of light is fits the science that we have very well. It doesn't approach it from a scientific standpoint, and that isn't the point of Genesis 1 to be a science textbook but it is a statement that fits the science that we have very well. And we're going to always have debates about what these days are, whether they're whether they are uh, 24 hours. My own personal position, and I know there are a lot of difficulties with this, so I'm not saying that it's something that I, that I can defend infinitely because I can only defend it so much. And that's true. The tr trouble is that's true with any theory of the beginning of the universe or any interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. You can only go so deep in your affirmation about what it actually says. Because the information we have is not enough to answer every question that we might have about it. And that's just the fact of the matter about any scientific statement or the book of Genesis. But what I, where I believe you get the great time in the universe, if there is time in the universe, these billions of years, is between verse 1 and verse 2. From the end, the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
to when he when he began on on six days to organize it all and to end the chaos. You see, by the end of the chapter, you no longer have this formless state or without form or chaotic state, but you have a very orderly state of things, including the creation of man by the end of chapter one. And that's when God says it's all very good. His word, God's word, brings order out of chaos. That's the point of Genesis one. And God's word brings life out of nothing, out of out of the death or out of the empty, emptiness. It says it was void or empty of life. And God's word is what brings life into the situation that are so much more packed into this chapter. But that would be my explanation that, that that the difference is there was a there was a surge of light at the very beginning brought about by God's word. And then God organized that light in the form we now see it or basically the form we now see it on day four, and that's the two differences of the two things. Two things, number one, it's interesting to me, all this focus we have on the stars of outer space, in Genesis chapter one, just a, it's just a side point in verse 16, and he made the stars also. So all of that worry we do about all the cosmos and all the billions of galaxies and universes in Genesis chapter one, since man is the center of everything, it just says he made the stars also. They were made for light for us. So there it is. Now, the other thing I want to point out about this chapter, and by the way, we'll be glad to have you call in. If you want to call in and talk about this, 772-340-1590, 772-340-1590. And we've got a couple of other uh, texts here that I want to uh, uh, get to in just a minute. I just noticed something on my phone. picked up my phone to look at these texts. It's been... Um, Apparently, it's been recording everything I've been saying for about 10 minutes here in a text message. So I'll try not to send that back, back out to any of you. It's a huge, long uh, text message. I must hit the wrong button on my phone, and now it's recording everything. That could be a dangerous thing, you know, uh, to do that. In any event, this idea of the first day of the week is interesting in the Bible because what you realize when you get to the New Testament is that the physical creation is a parallel of the spiritual creation that took place with Christ in the New Testament. And so you have this first day of the week mentioned in, in Genesis chapter 1. Now let me see if I can turn to this while I'm talking here. But you also have this idea of the first day of the week in 2 Corinthians, um, I went to the wrong chapter. I believe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he refers to, this, to the second day, the first day of the week again. Now, I may be... Um, oh, boy. Um, he brings up this phrase, let there be light. And in references it references it from uh, Genesis chapter one. Let there be light, and then he says in Second um, Corinthians he says that this let there be light was Jesus Christ being shown uh, out by the on the first day of the week. You see, if you, you get the it's. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And he says that our gospel, verse 3, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, that's that phrase, let there be light, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So he says, God first said in history, let there be light, and there was light by his word. And now he is, he said, let there be light again, and he's given us the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to shine upon us, to show us the glory of God. 
You're, and when did this happen? Well, it happened on the first day of the week. When was Christ raised from the dead? The Bible is very clear. It's not an accident or some anomaly or just a coincidence that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. The resurrection on the first day of the week is in this verse and a couple of others is specifically said to have happened because God was saying to the world, let there be light, the light of the resurrection shining on men to give them a hope. So the creation of the world in six days on the seventh day, God resting and light being made on the first day is not a coincidence. God did that because of what he intended to do later in history to bring Christ forth from the dead on the first day of the week to show us the glory of Jesus Christ, to save us. So there's a spiritual connection here. Now, I happen to believe that the physical was not first, but the physical was second. So what existed first, either in reality or in the mind of God, was the salvation of man through Jesus Christ. And then God created the world in a way to reflect that and so forth. So anyway, uh, thank you for calling, Sharon. This is my... Uh, take on that is where the long-winded take. It's a big, deep subject, but I think it's just a matter of seeing what really is in the text and trying to understand it rather than just jump to some conclusion that's a contradiction, doesn't make any sense. But we appreciate your calling. We've got another caller on the line. Gary, I mean, uh, Jerry, are you there? Uh, good morning, Mike. Uh, I don't know if Gary is with you this morning, uh, but I used to listen a lot to the Art Bell show, which was all about you know, UFOs and uh, universe and all that. Well, a couple and, people uh, listen. I was walking around Rossing Homes as an orderly. Uh-huh. And, uh, but uh, he was fired and George Norrie uh, took over. And uh, and I haven't been able to listen to the show. It's on radio in quite a few years. But my question this morning is about uh, in color uh, English, they teach that there's uh, seven conjunctive adverbs in the English language, seven conjunctive adverbs, adverbs, and all I know is the word yet is a conjunctive adverb, and the word but uh, is a conjunctive adverb. So this question goes back to a few weeks ago. Uh, the word they uh, in psychology they teach you that a masochist is a person that that feels that they must be punished, and uh, a person that's sick in the head, uh, they they miss on comfort, and they think a word they means other people. You know, uh, I don't follow if you uh, knew any more of those uh, seven conjunctival verbs, and uh, uh, as far as far as uh, is what were uh, you know, optional sources among long. They, uh, they thought that, I mean, uh, obviously Hitler was uh, a masochist, and he thought that uh, he misinterpreted the word they as meaning other people, that they must be punished, and it was, it was him that had to be punished, you know, because he was sick in the head. And uh, so the question is about conjunctival verbs, Mike, and I wonder if you could uh, add to my knowledge of the other seven uh, if you know any of these, and the only two I know is the word yet and but, and there, there are seven of them. I'd uh, like to listen off of Mike, if that's okay. That's fine, Jerry. Well, you know, I, I'm the the list that I'm seeing, and by the way, before we go any further into this, let me just tell you, in reading the Bible, I think that words like these conjunctive adverbs, the small connecting words, are some of the most important words that we have in understanding the Bible. They they really tell us conclusions. They tell us um, the point of things. And and here's a list, because, listen, it's been a long time since I took this kind of grammar study, but I could sit here. I'm not going to pretend I can sit here and spout off all the conjunctive adverbs, but I do know that they are very important words in Bible study. And a lot of these are used in the Bible. Some of them aren't. But here's some li- a list of some of these kind of words just for other listeners. There's accordingly. So you'll say something and say, well, accordingly, meaning in the same way, just like this. Additionally, also, anyway, besides, certainly, comparatively. So you put uh, comparison. When you see uh, the word but in the Bible, 
but God, Ephesians chapter 2. We were lost in sin, but God did this. When you see the word but, uh, if you're reading the Bible, and probably it's true in every other context too, you need to take, you need to stop for a second and say, okay, now wait, there, there's a dividing line, a but. What's before, what has he just said? What's before this? So get in your mind clearly. What's he talking about before this? Then you read the word but, and then you read what comes after, and you'll see that usually it's a comparison or contrast. Okay, so he's comparing two things or he's often contrasting two things. Now, not but is a little bit different construction. Not but, it means not this, and you need to get in your mind, what is the not, the, the first thing? But this, then he, you need to say, this is what we should be doing. So we're not supposed to do this, but we're supposed to do that. So the Bible makes those kind of statements in a lot of places. So you have consequently, conversely, meaning opposite of that, or consequently would be uh, because of this, here's the results. And there's a bunch of those in here. Thus is one. Therefore, there is a subsequently. So therefore, for example, is one we use more commonly. You say such and such, therefore, you're giving the cause of something. And therefore, you need to pay attention to that. Elsewhere, equally, finally. So when you read the word in the Bible, Peter uses several times, finally, my brethren, and so forth. You need to say, well, what does he mean, finally? What, what's he said before this? Go back and look at the things he said, because here's a list. Uh, in Philippians 4, finally, he says, whatever is pure, whatever is honest, whatever is just, you think on these things. And then further, furthermore, hence, henceforth, however, in addition, in comparison, in contrast, indeed, instead, uh, someone texts within apparently. Well, apparently would be an explanation, too. That's right. Meanwhile, likewise, moreover, namely, nevertheless, we see this in the Bible quite a few times. Nevertheless, or moreover, the same way. Moreover means here's another example in a conclusion type way. Here's another example of this. Nevertheless means, let me look at what's going on over here and then say, now, nevertheless, in spite of how bad that is or in spite of the truth of that statement, nevertheless, Here's this, you see. Uh, now, otherwise, otherwise meaning in the same way, but not the same way. Rather, regardless, still, subsequently, then, thereafter, therefore, is an important one. And so, and yet. So there's a bunch of these, um, and I see, I'm looking here on the internet, there's a bunch of more than I'm even said here of these conjunctive adverbs. Many of these are not common and they're repetitive. So there may only be, seven major ones and so i'm not contradicting what jerry said here but i'm saying these, this is an important way to to read the bible and to see what's what's going on here so you you see this many times and i always when i'm teaching how to study the bible uh, one of the ways that i teach it is to look at this kind of grammar and to see in these simple words what what we're what's really ahead of us. We, if we go to the book of Ephesians, there's a couple of different cases of this. Um, I mentioned that before. He, he says, if you go to verse four, for example, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he, he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, that's a conjunctive word, made us alive together with Christ. But if you look at but God, when you see the word but again, and that word but God's a very important phrase in the Bible, many passages, because it tells the difference between what things are like in the world or what men do and what God does. You look before that and you see that he's saying that humans were dead in trespasses and sins. You, the Gentiles, walked this way, and we, the Jews, in verse 3, we, we conducted ourselves this way. We did all these things and we were dead in all these sins we committed in the sight of God because of our sins and wickedness. But God, see, there's the contrast, who is rich in mercy. He brought forth Christ and made us alive together with Christ. Tremendous uh, contrast there, you see, in this case. Now, uh, let me see. I'll pick up my phone here because uh, we've got a couple. Um, yeah, uh, Bart Ehrman says, when you see a therefore, ask why it, it is therefore. And that's exactly right. It sounds like what my fifth grade uh, teacher would say she was very big on grammar, which I really, she was tough and ornery and nobody liked her. 
But Ms. Fulmer, wherever you are, thank you for making me pay attention to these kind of things. But anyway, uh, that's true about the toughest teachers you know, isn't it? They, they actually made you better and they taught you something usually. But anyway, he, wh why is it there? It is, it's there for something. It's not just a throwaway word. A lot of people, and I, this may be a problem when we, because we have versions like the King James that use words we don't use anymore. A lot of people think these words are just throwaway religious words. And so many religious people talk funny and they throw off a bunch of words that don't mean much in today's languages. They don't speak like a real person. And preachers don't do that. They speak in a preacher kind of language, we think. And so therefore, people then, when they read the Bible, don't pay attention to the words that are there. All these small words can make a big difference. And I'll give you an example of this in, in, um, in Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 5, one I use quite a bit in, in teaching about the importance of this. You come to this passage a lot of people consider controversial here in Ephesians chapter 5 about husbands and wives. And he says, for example, and I'm going to show you the importance of these may not be adverbs. These are more like prepositions, but they do the same thing. They define the limits of something else and show us something. You see in Ephesians 5.22, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it, and so forth. So ought husbands to love their own wives as their own bodies, and so forth. Now, people get, get and, and the big words there, we think, are the words submit and head, and love and all those kind of words. That's true, they're big, but the key words to interpret these words and not be misled by them are the small words as or even as, depending on the translation you have. Wives are, are submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. Now that's a statement not to the husbands to make his wife submit. It's a statement to the wife. Just as you submit yourself to the Lord voluntarily, you submit yourself to your husband in the same way. And the husband is the head of the wife, not just any old head, not just a, not a head like a drill sergeant or a dictator, but he's the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. So the definition and the understanding and the application of the word head or the word to submit is found in this small little word as here. And if we spend some time thinking and meditating about what that means and exploring in the rest of the scriptures what this looks like, then we're going to have a better better uh, chance of properly interpreting Ephesians chapter 5. Not to do away with headship and submission as feminists want to do, but to define it in a way that makes it something that comes from the Lord and not from the patriarchy, as we say, or from men or from women. Husbands, love your wives. Well, he doesn't just say love your wives. He doesn't mean by that love your wives like Hollywood says love your wives. He doesn't even say love your wife the way your wife wants you to be wants to be loved. He says love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So I'm supposed to look at Christ as my example and his love for the church as to how I give my how I treat my wife, not to the way Hollywood or romance novels or even feminists say I'm supposed to love my wife. Or even my wife herself, I'm supposed to love her the way Christ loved her. So this, this little word as, just like this, these words, these conjunctive uh, uh, adverbs, are very important to understanding the text of the Bible. And sometimes we just have to go along and mark these words in our text, in the text, and make a note of them. Uh, it's really a separate subject, but, you know, since, since Jerry brought up this up about words, uh, I when I talk to people who have never really studied the Bible before, and, and they want to know. They're genuine, and they want to know how to read the Bible. And I believe the Bible is meant to be read by ordinary people, not by the clergy, and then I just pass down to you what I think it says or what some council said, and you have to believe whatever that council said. No, this is not becoming just a Christian. Becoming a, just a Christian is you understanding the Bible 
for yourself and beginning to look at it. And so when people want to do this, they really do want to do it. I say, get yourself a notebook of some kind, begin to read someplace like John 1 or one of the other gospels. If you want to start someplace that you can grasp and get a hold of, begin to read each paragraph, each two or three verses. And as you read, either mark in your Bible or write down on a little notepad questions or words that you don't understand or what strikes you. Something that strikes you that you observe that either is repetition, it's something that's odd, it's a contrast that you see, it's a definition of a word you don't understand or you want to learn more. You write all this down in your little notebook there uh, corresponding to these verses. And then you can go back, what I have if they're studying with me, I say bring that back when we meet again next week and we'll go over this with you. I'll go over it and we'll talk about these things that you found. And it's funny, sometimes they, they as even as a brand new student, find things I've never really seen or thought of before. The Bible is very rich like that. And sometimes it's things that are, are something that you would have learned if you had experience. But in any event, this is how you study the Bible and read it. You begin to look at the, what the words are saying and you try to then each paragraph or so, and you see most Bibles have bold letters at the beginning of the number. If you look at your Bible, it probably has some verses are numbered in bold or there's a paragraph sign or something to show you that these, these sentences probably belong together. Now, the Holy Spirit didn't put the paragraph markings in, but they can help you. They help you to isolate bits of text that go together. And so you begin to then be able to read them and, and you can try to summarize them in a few words. Summarize each of the paragraphs in a few words. Start with smaller books or simpler books. And the Gospels are like this. Certainly some of the epistles are, but they can get, contain more complex theological thoughts. But the Bible, all through the Bible, even the simple parts of the Bible have very complex parts to them. Other parts can be understood. You know, Jesus said that even as obtuse as the Old Testament seems to be when we read it. On several occasions when people ask, ask Jesus questions, he said, have you not read? Meaning they should have been able to read this on their own, understand what was written there. Or he would say, how readest thou in the King James? What do you read? And so he's asking them, and he's really trying to exhort them, haven't you read what it says? You could understand that. And the implication is very clear. Jesus thought either that the Pharisees or others, even ordinary people who came to him with a question about God, they could have read what the Bible says about it and understood it. So the idea that it takes some kind of special clergy power to understand the Bible, and years and years of seminary training to understand it is simply not true. And I'd say that's even less true today than it was in Jesus' time, that it takes some special power because you have access to many resources at your fingertips, on your phone, your computer, or even in books, that you can read what various people say. You can get ideas. You don't have to believe what everybody says, but you can get ideas about it. And you have been, you've got an education, for the most part, that other people didn't have in ages past to understand these words. So I, I really appreciate the question um, that Jerry asked here about these conjunctive adverbs, because they do play an important part of understanding a Bible text. I'm, I'm trying to think of another example here, uh, if I can find it real quickly. Uh, it's over in uh, the book of First Peter. Give me just a second. I'll go over there. There's a couple of these where we have these same kinds of words. Uh, why can't I find First Peter? Let's see if I can find it. By the way, before we go to 1 Peter, let me give you the numbers again. You can call in this morning. We still have about 10 minutes left. We'll be glad to take your call, 772-340-1590. 772-340-1590 is the number to call in. You can also text in. You can text me this morning and during the week, 772-260-6120. 772-260-6120. Now, notice this passage in first peter chapter three he says wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear so wives are to be in submission to their own husbands 
so that even if they have an unbelieving husband, the husband can be won over to Christ by the by the holy, chaste conduct of their wife, accompanied by respect. The word fear there means respect. That's how wives are supposed to act. That's how my mother acted, and my father wasn't a Christian when they first married for many years, but he told me later that it was her attitude and behavior that convinced him to even take a look at the Bible, that it, that it had something he was missing. So this that's an exact representation in real life in my own family of the truth of this passage, if a woman can do that. But then he says in verse 3, more controversial to some even, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on apparel, but rather let it, putting on fine apparel, but rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, which is very precious in the sight of God. So he says, do not let your adornment be merely outward. Now, word, the word merely is inserted into the text by a translator. So it really just says, do not let your adornment be outward. And he gives examples, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Now, some have said, when you read this, oh, that means we can't have hairdos, do, can't do anything fancy with our hair, women can't wear gold, they can't put on, well, it, does, it says fine apparel, but when, once again, the word fine is interpolated, putting on apparel, they can't even wear clothes. We had a fellow interrupt our worship service in Tampa many years ago. He came in. He and his son, his son had a tambourine. They were barefoot, real long hair. And he began to interrupt the service by condemning all the women who were there, the Christian sisters, because some of them had gold wedding rings on and earrings. And he told them they were all harlots and whores because, and he was trying to refer to this verse because they had gold, put gold on and they were idolaters worshiping false gods because they were wearing a wedding ring. Well, uh, and that's an interpretation some people make of this verse, that you can't wear gold or jewelry. And we know there are religious groups sometimes up, up north are called apostolic um, Pentecostals, something like that, uh, who don't believe in wearing, do have, have, the, have their hairs just twirled up or something like that. He says, here's the point that I'm not trying to make about this, though. That's not what he's saying here, that we can't wear clothes as women. women. We we're forbidden from wearing, from doing up our hair. We're forbidden from wearing gold or putting on nice clothes. Because of the word that, like Jerry's talking about here in the call, don't let it be this, but rather let it be this. He's giving you a comparative contrast. Rather than focusing your adornment on outward adornment, how well you think you look to other people, as a woman, you need to focus on the hidden person of the heart where there's incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So Christian women get away from the worldly idea that what makes them beautiful is uh, their makeup or whether they're thin or whether they have the right kind of clothes that are stylish and so forth and what, what jewelry they have on compared to other people. They got to get away from those vanities, he's saying, as Christian women, and focus on this person of the heart, which can't be seen visibly from the outside, this hidden person. It's the inside person. It's inside the incorruptible beauty of a meek and quiet spirit. They're to alter their spirit, to put on that adornment of gentleness and, and kindness and quietness in parallel to Jesus Christ. That's what they're to put on. This is precious in God's sight. The other stuff might be precious in the sight of men who want to gaze upon women or judge people by their outward appearance. But the thing that the Christian woman is supposed to focus on here is rather, that's the important word in this verse, verse 4, rather the hidden person of the heart. So when you see these smaller words that aren't the big words in the passage like submit and adornment and, and modesty and all this kind of stuff, you see then what the real meaning of the passage which is about something completely different than, than what we think it is in this case. It's something that has to do with the hidden person of the heart. That's the, that's the point we're making here. So in any event, this is how these verses are to be looked at. These how the, that's how these words are to be viewed, and it helps you understand the real message of the Bible. So in any event, I appreciate both 
call about Genesis and the call about these adjectives and so forth. You still got a couple minutes to call in. We would appreciate if you do that. But last week, while I'm kind of closed out with something a little bit different this morning, a couple of odd things here. <laughs> I don't even know what to make of these. You know, I know I sometimes bring this kind of stuff up and people think I'm, uh, they probably think I'm crazy. I can see them rolling their eyes. But um, this article is about the Anglican Church. It's the Church of England. In the United States, this church is called the Episcopal Church. It's almost the same, but it's a, the Anglican Church or the English Church is the one that Henry uh, decided he would start in opposition to the Pope because he wanted to marry a woman the Pope said he couldn't marry. So he started his own church, began the head of his own church. There used to be almost no difference between the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church, but now there's quite a bit of difference. And so the Anglican Church, it says in this article, is comes comes up with this new um, doctrine that there is no official definition of a woman. In re written reply to a question submitted to the General Synod, a senior bishop said, although the meaning of the word woman was previously thought to be self-evident, additional care is now needed. And so the question was posed as institutions grapple with the ongoing debate surrounding trans rights, transsexual rights, and defines what is a woman. While the new stance has been welcomed by liberal wings of the Anglican Church, the comments have also provoked criticism with gender critical campaigning, saying whether your starting point is biology or the Bible, the answer to the question of what is a woman remains the same. So it's interesting. So the Anglican Church now comes out completely on the side of trans activists in their idea that, that any kind of person who claims that they're a woman by self-identification, actually is a woman. So the word woman then has no meaning that we can ascertain. Now, it's funny because the headline of the article I'm holding in my hand, it's, the headline is, when you didn't read the first chapter of the book, but still try to pass the test. I think we've all been there. So he's saying that the Anglican Church didn't even read the first chapter of the book of the Bible, and yet they're still trying to pass the test because they don't know that a woman is the female side of humanity. There are two sides of humanity, male and female. There are bell curves in both as far as certain characteristics, which we might associate with one sex or the other, but there's no one characteristic that defines either sex. This is something that it, you're born with because of creation genetically, and the Bible says that in the beginning, when God made them, he made them male and female. So when you tr when you read the first chapter of the book, you'll get that idea and you won't get the rest of the stuff that's going on now because of trans activism. I'm not advocating being mean to trans transsexuals. Uh, used to be called cross-dressers. I know that's a form of transsexualism, I suppose. I'm not advocating anybody hurting anybody or being mean or unkind in that way, but that this this whole proposition ought to be mocked and ought to be examined, ought to be looked at in, in light of the scriptures and not wishful thinking. If we can make define any word any way that we want to based on someone's getting upset about it, then we're in big trouble as a culture and we really are. Well, we got to stop this morning. Thank you so much for listening. Our time is gone. I want to take the last minute of the show. And invite you, first of all, to come and be with us in our assemblies at 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard, 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard. That's at the corner of California and Savona and here in Port St. Lucie. We're on the southwest corner behind the little shopping center with the milk and things and the daycare center. Come and be with us at 10 o'clock this morning for Bible study. Probably start about 10 after 10 and 11 o'clock for our worship where we have uh, communion and preaching at 11 o'clock and also 730 on Wednesday nights when we have another Bible study. We'd love to have you. We're not going to ask you for money or embarrassment. I want to invite you to take a look at our website, which is wearejustchristians.com. Wearejustchristians.com. You can find podcasts of this radio show, 
of all the sermons and lots of other biblical resources. We invite you to do that, and we pray that you tune in again next week, and that God bless you. You've been listening to We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie on WPSL Port St. Lucie.